You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Southern Peanut Growers, committed to making sustainable more attainable for chefs and cooking enthusiasts worldwide. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I have an amazing, amazing show today. Um, we are welcoming Helena Bottomiller-Evich, uh, a senior food and agricultural reporter at Politico, where she writes about the policy and politics that shape our food system from the Farm Bill to School Lunch. Um, Helena has received numerous uh, well-deserved awards for her work, including a George Polk Award, for a series on climate change and two James Beard Awards for features on nutrition and science. Before joining Politico in 2013, she was a reporter at Food Safety News, which is actually where you came to my attention, Helena, uh, where she covered deadly foodborne illness outbreaks and the run-up to Congress passing the most significant update to food safety law in a century. That would be the Food Safety Modernization Act passed under the Obama administration, for those of you who don't remember that. Um, and her work is widely, widely cited in the media. And she has also appeared in the Columbia Journalism Review and on NBC News. And soon, I have no doubt you will be appearing on many other outlets, my dear. Um, so what is an amazing story is uh, that Helena launched an investigation into the Food and Drug Administration um, I didn't actually write down the title of the piece or the date, which was remiss of me. But basically, it's about how the food, the FDA essentially has kicked food and food safety to the curb um, in the service. I mean, understandably in COVID, but before that, it wasn't really doing its job either. So first of all, what was the name of the of the story and what date was it published so people can go back and read this? Yeah, so the short headline is FDA's food failure, and right. it's from oh, about a month ago. I actually don't have the date off the top of my head. I should. It's been about a blur, a blur <laughs> of a month between that investigation <laughs> posting and then now this um, infant formula debacle. Right, uh, which so you have about, also about written ago. extensively about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, a lot is happening all at once. Um, so that, I meant to look piece, it up. I, I mean, yeah, I about, while we're talking, Google, I will look yeah. it up and, uh, yeah, and I'll give people Google the Politico date. food. I have it in my pocket. Uh, it should be the first you know, thing the, that comes You up. know, that pocket thing. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. But anyway, let's love start uh, by talking. I know I love pocket. It saves my life. Um, first of all, what prompted you to launch this investigation? And, and, and how did you get so many people to talk? Like, I was amazed at the sources you were able to quote. It's it's a great question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so what's so interesting about this story is like it is, I think, really shocking and really like kind of mind blowing for people outside of food world. But inside a food world, if you work in the food industry or in food policy, this story was not surprising to you. It was not news to you. Mm. It is openly discussed that food is not a high priority at FDA, that food policies take a really long time, whether it's food safety or nutrition. These are just normal um, these are normal things. This is this is what we have come to expect. And so 
I think in some ways, this entire sector has just become so used to this that they almost don't realize how dysfunctional it is. So right. um, the, the reason I did this deep dive was actually I was talking to um, an editor that I've done a lot of my big pieces with, Peter Canellis, and he's not steeped in food world. And we were working on a story last spring about um, FDA and sort of how it hasn't set standards for um, heavy metals and baby food. And some of these right. guidances hang around for years and years and years, you know, like 2013. It's been like 10 years since some of these things Ooh. have been finalized. And I mentioned something like, you know, oh, this is just normal. These are just the time. This is just how long it takes FDA to do things. It takes forever. Mm -hmm. And he was like, you know, you should really kind of step back and just explain why that is. Mm. Like basically reminding me like this is kind of a shocking thing to hear. Right. Um, and so that's sort of the the genesis. We started talking about it from there. And um, we we actually talked about, you know, uh, at one point, I remember Peter said to me, uh, you know, why don't you do like the McKinsey analysis of what's wrong with FDA? Right. And um, lo and behold, like months later, I realized that like McKinsey was actually involved in the reorg that sort of, you know, made the decision making at FDA. Uh, that surprised me enormously. Yeah. I was yeah. very, because I think of McKinsey as being an entity that uh, does, you know, economic analysis, uh, analysis of banks and trading. And, you know, it never occurred to me that they would have been brought in to talk with FDA officials on how to reorganize and make their process more streamlined and more efficient, which in fact they did not succeed in doing, yeah. obviously. Well, well, what's interesting is McKinsey actually had a really large contract with FDA and it Ooh. was it was like a $50 million contract and it was to work on a lot of things, not just this. So there has been some really interesting and concerning reporting around McKinsey's involvement in FDA's like opioid uh, policies and strategies because McKinsey's consultants were also advising um, Purdue Pharma. So oh like at the God. same time. So so there is, if, if your listeners are interested in sort of a tangential uh, or different topic, but it is sort of related in that it involves McKinsey, um, highly recommend the New York Times um, and ProPublica both done some really good reporting on that. Uh, anyway, wow. side note, but yes, so McKinsey apparently has been, you know, a, a, a really, really involved at FDA for for several years. Absolutely shocking. So you got people who were former uh, FDA, uh, you know, officials, cogs in the wheel, as it were, as well as uh, quite a few people who are working there currently um, to talk about some of the problems. And it it seemed as if they were all, as you say, sort of resigned. <laughs> like there, it was a sort of shocking at how complacent they were with the status quo. And I, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what they said, but also some of the structural flaws that have contributed to, you know, the, the various issues that you uncovered in the investigation. Yeah. Um, well, just, just to give you one example, the, I think one of the top quotes in the story is from um, uh, Stephen Ostroff, who was, acting commissioner of FDA twice and was also one of the highest or the highest food official before um, he retired. And 
when I called him to ask about this story, and I note this in the piece, um, he was so ready to discuss like the concerns about structure and everything that he he came up with like a list of wow. <laughs> of his concerns. And he was very open that food has long been a back burner issue, um, that there's a lack of urgency. Um, and this is a theme that is repeated across like current and former officials and then also you know, the food industry sitting on the outside and consumer advocates both um, get frustrated with FDA slowness, sometimes for different reasons, right? Like the consumer groups want them to take a harder line. Industry groups often just want clarity on like Mm -hmm. where things are headed. Even if they don't love what what FDA is doing, they want to, they want to know what their rules of the road are, right? So so everyone kind of comes at this from a different angle, but where there is broad consensus is just that it takes too long to get any of these things done. So like there's so many examples. You mentioned FISMA. We're 11 years into FISMA. Right. And we don't have an ag water standard, um, you know, a standard to regulate the water used in fresh produce. Right. I mean, sodium has hung around forever. We still don't have voluntary sodium goals. That Those are going right. to kick in in the next two years here. So, you know, you just go through these examples and I started joking that I, I needed like a spreadsheet or something to keep <laughs> to keep a list of like, you know, I would talk to people and be like, hey, I'm doing this story on, you know, what basically why it takes FDA to do, to it takes FDA forever to do anything. And people would go, oh my gosh, are you going to include, you know, grass and food chemicals? Are you going to include, you know, wow. antibiotics and agriculture? I mean, the number of issues I wasn't able to right. include that also have really long timelines is kind of astonishing. And again, sort of proves out this this theme even further. Like the story could have been three times as long. It could have been about, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't have time for this, but I you mean, know. literally you could write <laughs> yeah. a book. You could write a book about yeah. this. Yeah, um, I could. But Helen, so what are the structural flaws? Like why does it take so long for say, um, you know, for, for, to give that example that you just did of, about establishing water stand water quality standards for cleaning produce. Now this, for people who aren't aware of this, like every time there is a spinach recall, a romaine recall, we all have seen those. They've come up in the news, you know, you do get, and, and they cause hundreds, sometimes thousands of cases of foodborne illness. And this has been ongoing for decades and they've been working on this water quality standard for, I don't know, what, like 10 years? Mm-hmm. And they still don't have a water quality standard or even a method of enforcement. Can you explain to people why it is that it takes so long for these various, uh, you know, investigations and policy decisions to be, you know, funneled through the whatever the bureaucracy is? Yeah, you you brought up structure. And I, I think that's a, a key thing to to keep in mind here. So essentially FDA is below the Department of Health and Human Services. So um, it regulates like a quarter of the economy or a fifth of the economy or something, um, which is big, right? Consumer spending, think about it, includes like cosmetics, food, um, microwaves, drugs, biologics, medical devices, right? So it's a pretty sweeping um, agency. But because it's below HHS, um, the FDA commissioner, Senate confirmed, but they're not in the cabinet. Um, so they're just kind of structurally a little bit lower down in the in the government when you think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Then there's the the fact that the FDA commissioner almost always comes from 
more of the drug or medical product side. So like we have never that I know of seen a commissioner that was like really from the food side. I think we had one veterinarian that, you know, had mm-hmm. maybe some more animal drug background, but you know, it, it's, it's almost always heavily on the, you know, the medical products and drug side. So then I think you get a natural sort of leadership um, tendency to, to focus more on these other issues. There have been some exceptions where, where commissioners will come in and they have a lot of interest in food, like David Kessler during the Clinton administration was right. really interested in nutrition, did the nutrition facts label for the first time. Recently, actually, um, the Trump administration, or um, Scott Gottlieb, who was commissioner during the Trump administration, he was tremendously interested in food issues. I mean, mm. you would see him pushing the ball. He was trying to push the ball forward even on like sodium reduction, which was hard to get done even during the Obama years. And so there's a few exceptions, but for the most part, the commissioner is just not that interested in food issues. Um, So that's the second one. Then thirdly, I think the the structure at CIFSAN itself, which is the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition, which is FDA's like food division. Um, They have structural and leadership problems there too. There's like an open power struggle between the top two officials right now. Um, I think a deep, deep seated culture of being afraid to really um, do anything too controversial or anything that, that might, um, might, might kind of spark too much uh, pushback or ire. And, um, and then there's the, the, the issue of the food industry being, you know, quite powerful on on Capitol Hill. And one of the observations that Gottlieb makes in this story, which I think is so interesting, is is saying that like the food industry goes to the Hill to push back on what FDA is doing right. pretty frequently. They do not, the drug industry doesn't do that for FDA. Like mm-hmm. they kind of respect FDA's um uh, role and like authority. And so there's just a fundamentally different relationship with the industry, which is kind of an interesting wrinkle. Here. I think that's fascinating. I mean, the idea that uh, the food industry uh, goes to Congress, congressional members and says, oh, we don't like uh, this proposed new standard for, mm-hmm. say, antibiotics in livestock, a subject which I return to again and again with increasing ire myself because I can't believe that in the 12 years I've been doing this radio program, not one damn thing has changed. <laughs> you know, there's been all this reporting about the implications mm-hmm. on worldwide health uh, from overuse of antibiotics, and yet we still do not have mandatory, uh, you know, uh, mandatory guide or mandatory regulations about what can be used in what circumstances and by whom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so so I, what you're saying to me in a way is that uh, that this, um, you know, the Center for Food and, um, sorry, for Center for Food Safety and Nutrition should really be spun off into a separate agency from the Food and Drug Administration. Don't you think? I mean, yeah, there there are um, definitely experts who have made that case, right? Yeah. That we should have a single food safety agency and you should wrap like, you know, because we have this weird divide between FDA and USDA, right? USDA, yes. you have to have an inspector in the plant um, to operate and FDA has a much different model where they are more likely to inspect like once every few years. So, you know, shouldn't there be sort of a unified strategy um, on food safety? And I, I think maybe intellectually, you can make that argument. I think politically, it's darn near impossible to actually make that happen. But 
Um, certainly there are, are people on Capitol Hill, including um, House uh, Appropriations Chair Rosa DeLora, who have made that case of like, why don't mm-hmm. we kind of centralize these uh, functions? But I am not holding my breath about that happening. Yeah. Um, I think most people agree, though, if you were to start over from scratch, you would not set up the system we have. I mean, food safety, I think, covers like I think there's 12 federal agencies that are involved in some way in food safety. Wow. Think about EPA. They regulate pesticides. So, Mm -hmm. like, you know, there's all sorts of different pieces of this that are spread out. And GAO, the Government Accountability Office, has has like raised fragmentation in the food safety system as a concern for like a very, very long time, definitely more than a decade. So this has been a known challenge for a long, long time. And what's interesting is that the numbers of foodborne illness outbreaks, which you know far better than I do uh, from all your work with um, Food Safety Journal and whatever, Bill Marler and all that stuff, um, you know, they're in the tens of thousands a year with thousands of people dying every year from foodborne illness. So you'd think that with those uh, statistics being what they are, that there would be, you know, a little bit more of a fire in the belly to, to kind of get this right. I mean, I it's hard for me to compare this to Europe or other nations. I mean, you know, everybody's got their own reasons and problems for not being able to make the food supply as safe as it could be. But uh, I think it's it's really astonishing how lax we are in this country. So I want to talk for a minute about another aspect. Um, you mentioned the Office of Regulatory Affairs in your investigation. So we, we've, we've already identified that there's a power struggle between FDA and the Center for Food Safety and Nutrition. Then there's the Office of Regulatory Affairs, which get, according to your piece, they get a lot of money to play with. But um, not much is being regulated, and there is uh, very little to no transparency in that office. What exactly is going on there, and how do they fit into this equation? Yeah, so in addition to the power struggle within CIFSAN, there's also this other division of FDA, ORA, the Office of Regulatory Affairs. Mm -hmm. And that um, division oversees the inspectional force, so the inspectors that are not just inspecting food, but also drugs and biologic uh, facilities so and and others but um they that division gets something like two-thirds of the food safety budget for um for the agency so like the foods uh the the money that congress gives fda for the foods program the vast mm-hmm. majority of it goes to ora mm. but there's a lot of questions about like how much uh, CIFSAN, the food division, really has a say over how ORA spends that money. And they are doing fewer and fewer food safety inspections, even though they are getting more and more money. And so um, some members of Congress and definitely some food safety advocates have raised questions like, can you better explain how you're spending this money? Can you have more transparency over how decisions are made. So there is some pressure on on that piece of it, which I think um, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf, who's going to um, be before the um, uh, House Appropriations Committee this week, I, I can imagine he will get some questions on that this week. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly In hope so. In addition to getting grilled by Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, I think she's going to... Yeah bring the fire. I mean, she is so outraged about this infant formula situation in particular. 
Yeah, so. well, I want to have time to talk about that. But before we go there, I want to, you know, we, we talked a minute ago about the uh, Food Safety Modernization Act, which is supposed to fix a lot of the issues that we have touched on here, uh, most notably the water quality standards, food safety modernization also included regulating antibiotics and livestock, as I recall, um, and some other stuff. Uh, the, the, what, what are some of the other um, places where say the Office of Regulatory Affairs, they're supposed to be pushing inspectors into the field um, they are different from the inspectors that the USDA sends out to meat plants. So this is, let's make it clear that this is not the same as USDA. This is mm-hmm. part of the food safety, you know, uh, apparatus of FDA. Are they the ones who are supposed to be regulating what's happening, uh, say, in, you know, spinach farms and lettuce place, you know, things like that? Mm-hmm. Is that is that what their role is, is to be identifying the problems from field to fork, as it were, when it comes to food safety that is not meat? Yes, they they definitely have a role in that. Although the vast majority of inspections are actually um, <clears throat> being contracted and, and done through the states. So the state... Jesus. Um, either yeah, no either, either the Department of Ag... <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of different moving parts here. Wow. So the states are doing more of the inspections. And also, you know, the states are able to do these inspections for a lot less money Mm -hmm. per inspection than FDA can. So there's a little bit of tension between the states and FDA about like who's doing what. And Mm -hmm. the other thing I can tell you is that I've talked to some state inspectors and they were not impressed that FDA during the pandemic basically kept all their inspectors at home. They didn't do really any routine food safety inspections um, other than, quote, mission critical, although somehow mission critical didn't include all of the infant formula plants, which we've now learned. Right. So the states were like, wait a minute, we were back on the job. You know, I don't remember how many months. I think every state was a little bit different. So there's some, there's some, you know, there's some tension there. Um, but yeah. yes, the states, the, the, the food safety money that FDA has is supposed to, um, help do oversight across all foods and and that would include produce. Um, right. But, you know, FISMA, part of the reason why FISMA was so hard is that it, it really put FDA in a role of even having any jurisdiction over farms for the first time. And even that I think is still a little touchy. Huh. Right. So, um, yeah, we, I wasn't we didn't, aware we never of that. Had, like, hmm. Yeah, we never had like federal food safety anything for for, for uh, produce for farms yeah. and produce, yeah. right? Which is which would explain why the water quality standard of what you wash those vegetables in, uh, you know, cannot be coming from a source where they're spraying a manure for fertilizer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. next door, which is why so often you find uh, spinach or lettuces or whatever are contaminated with E. coli. I mean, just so, yeah, just to also, kind of identify the, for people how that happens. Mm-hmm. Right. Sorry, and it's also the water, it's also the water used to irrigate. So like right. in, in Yuma, Arizona, they have like, op- they have open water, open, um, open, open sewers. Air. Uh, no, like like oh. open irrigation uh-huh. uh, canals, right? So I see, but they're you know in vicinity of a large CAFO with like great tens of thousands of head of cattle. So right, you know, it's not 
rocket science, how some pathogens in the environment can then, you know, get in the water and then potentially get in the lettuce or the different sure. greens. So, you know, the, the, there are some real, real challenges with that, that FDA is aware of that, you know, producers are aware of that the states are aware of. And yet we just haven't quite, uh, gotten to the heart of that issue. We quite haven't quite tackled it because it just keeps, it keeps happening. Well, it keeps happening and they're, they're, you know, as you said, it's to get people to inspect and then to further, you know, insist on regulations and make sure that those regulations are being implemented and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's costs money, it takes manpower, and obviously that's not happening. We need to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. And then when we come back, I really want to talk really for the rest of the show about this infant formula thing, because it's become such a political football and, um, you know, it is essentially so, well, anyway, predictable in some ways, but we'll be right back. This episode is proudly supported by Southern Peanut Growers, who are spreading the word about peanut sustainability. As the planet's resources are strained to meet the nutritional needs of its populations, many responsible chefs are doing their part by sourcing local and sustainably raised food. Many are surprised to learn that peanuts are one of the most sustainable plant-based proteins available. Southern Peanut Growers created the campaign Making Sustainable More Attainable in partnership with award-winning chef Stephen Satterfield. Together, they're bringing the sustainability message to chefs nationwide. Whether it's conserving water, minimizing fertilizers, or achieving zero waste, peanuts are a logical choice for your next menu. Southern Peanut Growers represent farmers across Georgia, Florida, Mississippi, and Alabama. For more information, visit www.peanutbutterlovers.com. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhattan, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Okay, so um, you, it, even today in Morning Ag, you, uh, Politico's Morning Agricultural Report, which I hope people are subscribing to, um, <laughs> you had a little piece about uh, about the infant formula recall. Now, one of the things somebody sent me a piece about this. I haven't read it as thoroughly as I should have. But the but to start off with discussing this, let us explain to people that the number of companies that are allowed to make formula in this country are very small. Like so many other aspects of our food system, they are 
highly concentrated uh, monopolies. So let's uh, let's start with that, and then I want you to give a quick sort of timeline of how this played out and what the role of the FDA should have been and hasn't been. Yeah, the consolidation piece is is so interesting, and that's really getting a lot more attention now. Um, you know, you, you're well aware, your reader, your listeners, you know, you you hear about consolidation in meat packing or yep. the you know ag chemicals or fertilizer or even you know seeds. I think get more attention, but infant yep. formula, you never hear anything about this. But there right. are about four companies that control nearly ninety percent of the U.S. market. Um, the two big ones are Abbott and Mead Johnson. They control, I don't know, something probably like two-thirds of the market. So we're yep. talking really consolidated, even more consolidated than some of these other industries. That seed companies, to. yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is starting to get a lot more attention, particularly from Democrats on Capitol Hill. They have asked USDA and the FTC to take a look at this. Um, I think we're going to hear more on this front because the shortage is getting a ton of attention. It's causing a lot of people to sort of look under the hood, right? Mm -hmm. And say, what, you know, why is this happening? And I think there's a lot of contributing factors, but consolidation is clearly going to be a hot topic. Um, We don't have, um, we we don't have that many companies that are really major players here. And there's also um, been some questions about what role the WIC program might have played in fueling consolidation or encouraging it because WIC, which um, helps low-income families that are either pregnant or have young children get like healthy staples. They also provide free formula and breast pumps and things like that. Um, WIC probably buys about half the formula-ish. We don't really have great up-to-date numbers on that, but a huge chunk of the U.S. formula market is is WIC. So WIC does exclusive contracting state by state. So companies bid for contracts and then they get the exclusive rights to the whole state. And this really, um, really affects not only, you know, obviously what WIC options there are, but then also the retail options and sort of the demand in that state is, is affected by that. So Democrats are now saying, look, you know, we don't blame WIC. We we love the WIC program, but are there, you know, maybe some things that can be done to encourage competition and maybe um, maybe make sure that one of these federal nutrition programs isn't exacerbating consolidation. So I think that's going to be something that's looked at as well in the coming months. So how did this, so remind me of what happened here. So Abbott uh, a few, a couple of babies, or actually, I don't know, what was it, about a dozen infants came down so with a bacterial four, infection, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so four, um, basically, we all learned about this in February. So February right. 17th, FDA and Abbott announced this really massive recall, which included Similac, Abbott. So Abbott Nutrition makes Similac, which is the number one brand in the U.S. And it included mm-hmm. a couple of other brands as well. So this was probably the largest recall, the infant formula recall in history. We don't yep. exactly have the volume, but it was, it was quite big. So um, then once this recall happened, I noticed that the, f- the first... Um, the first illness had been all the way back in September, right? So we're huh. talking about February. The first 
report of an infant being hospitalized was in September. Right. Um, in total, there were four um, infant hospitalizations and two deaths that were reported, and that is what sparked um, the this recall whole situation. Right. right. So, so basically, what happened after the recall happened, we then started to learn more about the run up. Essentially, what happened is February there was a hospitalization that was reported from Minnesota. And um, the same week that the hospitalization was reported to FDA, FDA inspectors were in that plant, in the Abbott Nutrition Plant in Sturgis, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And it appears they were not told about the hospitalization. So they weren't looking for Cronobacter. We don't even know if they swabbed the plant for that bug. They don't normally do that. Um, unless they have sort of reason to be looking for it. So um, so it just is a coincidence they were in there and they hadn't been in there in two years, even though normally they would be there every year. Like that's the typical sure. sort of cadence for infant formula inspections. They're, they happen much more often than regular food inspections because it's a very vulnerable population, obviously. So, right. um so they were in there after two years. They found some issues, but nothing like super serious. There was no warning letter, no, um, you know, regulatory action from there. Okay. Then we learned in October, top FDA officials got a whistleblower warning from a former plant employee. Whoa. Basically, yeah, alleging that like not only did this plant have food safety issues, but that they were falsifying documents, like records. They were... Will, like on purpose hiding things from FDA inspectors, really some serious, Gee, serious allegations. 34 page single space document, like really serious, sent to seven officials at FDA. They did not interview that whistleblower until December. Oh my God. I know. So in the meantime, you had three more reports of infant hospitalization. You had two deaths reported. And then FDA went back into that plant January 31st. So we're talking September, October, then January 31st, they go back into the plant. They found really serious issues when they went back in January, including, um, you know, repair issues, standing water, like lack of food safety controls. And they found five strains of Cronobacter. So that's the, the bacteria we're talking about here. Right. Then uh, they recalled February 17th. So that's like the the top line of the lead up timeline. So there are many, many questions about why this oh took my God. so long, why decisions were made. Um, members of Congress have a lot of questions about this, as do I. I mean, I've had a really hard time getting answers from FDA what to a surprise. explain their decision making. <laughs> yeah, I know. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean... Uh, do you think that FDA, I mean, will will heads roll because of this? I mean, what what do you anticipate? There's going to be a congressional oversight hearing, right? Uh, led so we're by, having, uh, sorry, yeah, we're having Kate. So Commissioner Califf is going before House Ag approves Thursday, but then next week, next next Wednesday, we're actually Congress has scheduled two infant formula hearings on the same day. House Energy and Commerce Committee is holding a hearing and um, also the full appropriations committee is holding a hearing. So, um, I, you know, Congress can't force anyone 
out of FDA that I know of. I, I think that would have to come from leadership at FDA, but I have not heard anything about any sort of direct personnel response or anything like that. But a lot of groups on the outside are really trying to pressure Calif to think about restructuring the food program so that A, someone's in charge of it and clearly in charge of it. Yeah. And B, so that, you know, maybe they're more responsive to sort of outside concerns because as I mentioned, like it's not like one group is frustrated with FDA. Everyone is frustrated right. with FDA right now. Including so. people within FDA as well as oh, yeah. former yeah. people who have left the agency but who have plenty to say about how badly it's run. You know, the other thing, I mean, infant formula, you know, is grabbing all the headlines. But I haven't forgotten that there was an enormous amount of, uh, but brief coverage of all of the um, neurotoxins, like a arsenic in rice cereal that pretty much every baby in this country is fed uh, for a certain period of time. Um, and and then there were other uh, there were other uh, issues with uh, arsenic in formula in uh, sorry not in formula arsenic in baby food. Um, uh, in rice cereal, but there was also uh, arsenic in something else, like in carrots. There was uh, neurotoxins, mercury and carrots. I'm sorry, I'm being so incoherent here, but you know, I, I started. I get too excited, and then I'm like, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, no, I'm so, so upset yeah, by you're this. right. Like the yeah, the the heavy the heavy metals issue um, in that baby hasn't food gone really away. blew up. No, 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 that has not gone away. That that blew up in Congress early 2021. So there was a big right. congressional report that had asked for documents from from um, baby food companies about their testing practices and their internal test results. Um, so FDA, as a result of that um, report and all the media coverage following it, FDA basically got publicly shamed into setting Stand into saying they will set set standards for various heavy metals in baby foods because we don't we don't have standards except for we do have a um, a guidance action level for you mentioned arsenic arsenic and rice cereal that level that FDA set is a hundred parts per billion and health groups really don't feel that it is anywhere near strict enough to be protective of infant health, but it was essentially set to be um, like feasible for industry. And um, so they, they don't like that standard anyway, but it is the only standard we have for like mm. a specific baby food. We, the, the, the FDA did just finalize finally some uh, guidance on, on juice um, I believe that was targeted at lead, but, you know, real narrow in, in where we actually have standards. So right. um, FDA is working on this. They're already behind schedule um, in what they committed to do last year. There's a standard, an initial standard sitting at OMB right now, but um, it, it basically took like a lot of public outrage, yeah. outrage from Capitol Hill and, and so on for them, for them to agree to do this. And, and even though they've agreed to set standards, their timeline extends three years and beyond in terms of what they're going to do. Exactly. I mean, we, we've just been discussing the fact that it's taken over 10 years to even come close to addressing water quality standards. And here we are feeding the infant population of our nation 
you know, with heavy metals and neurotoxins. I mean, it's, you know, well, we'll let that ride for another few years and see what happens. I mean, it's really astonishing. Uh, we have only, I'd say, about five more minutes before people start tuning out our outrage here. Um, <laughs> and that's not because of you. It's all because of me. Um, but the upshot of your piece, because um, let's go back to your investigative uh, you know, triumph here, is that the FDA uh, is basically sloppy, incompetent, opaque, and riddled with corruption. They knuckle under the food industry via members of Congress who obviously t tell them, oh, no, don't be investigating that right now because that I might, might, I might not be getting my campaign contributions, and we don't want that. So, so what from your discussions with, you know, the various members of, uh, you know, Congress and, and former FDA officials and everything, did you get a sense of what can or should be done to, uh, you know, do a better job of keeping our food supply safe for not just infants and children, but for all of us? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I don't think I would go as far as to say that that FDA is corrupt. I think there is a lot of I would <laughs> officials there who. Well, I mean, yeah, just just to, just to add a, a little nuance there. You're yeah, a journalist, so, so, so you have to say that, but I'm not. So <laughs> you can say you could definitely say what you want. This is um, a discussion. It's my show. <laughs> yes, 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 right. yes. But but I I think that a lot. You know, the vast majority of people who work at FDA are committed to public health or trying to do the right thing, I think they work in a structure that is very difficult to navigate. And I think if you want to do something protective of public health, I think a lot of the structure and the politics and everything and the lack of staff and the lack of bandwidth, I think, create really major barriers to doing that. So, you know, I had FDA officials who still work, who are very much working at FDA kind of quietly say, thank you for your story. I'm also frustrated, right? So I, I just want to make that point that it's not, I don't think it's that um, it's some sort of like malicious thing. I think it's sort of a structure that has that is sort of set up to, to fail in some ways. Uh -huh. But um, in terms of what to do, I, I, I think the question of leadership really, really comes up here. So the, our new commissioner for the FDA, Commissioner Califf, really has, I think, some decisions to make about whether or not to kind of listen to everyone on the outside um, and make some real changes within FDA's food program or, or whether, I don't know whether he will heed those uh, those calls or whether he'll go more down the road of sort of status quo and sort of like, let's just move on from this. I, I don't know yet, but mm -hmm. everyone's sort of watching to see what kind of leadership he will um, show in response to all of this. Where did he come from? What, what, what were his, you know, what's his CV? How did he he's get He's a cardiologist. The... Yeah, he's uh -huh. a cardiologist with a clinical research background. He was most recently, so he was actually FDA commissioner briefly during the Obama administration for about a year, mm -hmm. and now he's back. Um, he most recently worked at Alphabet, which is the company that, over, that owns Google. So he was doing right. like digital, I think like digital and sort of health strategy there. Um, so he, he certainly... Um, falls into the category of like a really strong, mostly medical and like clinical research background. Um, 
does not have right. a background so again, in food. Again, does not have a food safety or food, doesn't have a food uh, background. So isn't, for instance, all plugged into the agriculture community or, you know, food manufacturing and so forth. Yeah. Doesn't and have the, that background. the other thing about food that's so interesting is that it is a much bigger and more complicated industry than like drugs or medical devices, which is hmm. just fewer companies, fewer players. And like, just think about like the, the map, the number of commodities that we're talking about, like even just within leafy greens, you've got like sure. spinach that has different issues than romaine that has different issues than sprouts or whatever. And so right. I think it it's kind of seen as like this, like this very complicated morass compared to uh, some of the other issues before FDA. So I, I think that's sort of the, 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 uh, the reputation that food has is it's like this complicated and really messy it is. area. It is complicated. To, yeah, you and, and messy. I know. You and I know this. Yeah, I mean, it is. but that doesn't People mean have that knife you... fights over the small, yeah. seemingly small things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it it doesn't. I mean, to go back to the corruption issue, I'm not. I don't mean to suggest to anybody that the you know the people who work at FDA are you know taking bribes on the side to look you know, look the other way when something that, bad that, goes that would down. That very I, illegal, yes. I don't yes. think that's what's happening. But I do think that succumbing to pressure um, about what kinds of regulations should be imposed on various aspects of the food industry, that I do believe is subject to corruption. Um, and I And I do believe that there are probably people who are, you know, if not turning a blind eye, just sort of, uh, you know, letting business proceed as usual because it's potentially uh, a bomb for them uh, if they were to meddle in the business of, you know, trying to impose some sort of regulation that people don't like, like like imposing regulations yeah, yeah. on the use of antibiotics in livestock, for example, which has been yeah. dragging on yeah. to the detriment of public health around the world. I mean, there, there's no disputing uh, that this is going to be a very, this is a very dangerous and volatile situation. And having just come off of this pandemic or not even, we're not done with it. You know, like uh, when we stop being able to use penicillin products, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. you know, it's just the implications of this are so huge. And yet we cannot seem to drive, you know, the Food and Drug Administration cannot seem to drive any kind of regulations across the finish line uh, regarding the use of antibiotics. I, I think that's corrupt. I just do. There's something fundamentally very wrong with that. Yeah, there's no question that there there's no question there is major industry influence at FDA. There, there's, yeah. that, that is not in dispute. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's that's where the rubber meets the road is stuff like that. I mean, you know, we have something like 27, what is it? You know the statistics better than I do. What is it? It's like 125 or 130,000 people a year are reported to suffer a foodborne illness uh, from whether it's meat or leafy greens or sprouts. Uh, probably around 25 or 30,000 people a year are dying from those those same illnesses, like it's a hundred. I think CDC's numbers are one hundred twenty-eight thousand hospitalizations and yeah. three thousand deaths, and okay. they. But they right. also they also uh, 
estimate that like something like 48 million people actually get some version of foodborne illness every year. Although a lot of those cases are norovirus, which I don't know if you've had recently, but no, it's awful. I have to <laughs> I say, had I it have... twice this year. You're kidding, really? I assume that that's what I had. I mean, it was just awful. Yeah, I've had it once. Um, I'm, I'm not even sure that's what it was, but probably. I mean, I, I ate a bad hamburger and I was sick for about three days. And boy, you're right. Uh, you know, you're really freaking sick, man. You are really sick. But fortunately, I've been lucky, maybe because I don't eat out very often anymore. Um, but, yeah. I, you know, it's just there There has to be some answer to this, um, just as there has to be an answer to the consolidation of the baby food or the infant formula, you know, industry is another place where there is, you know, who somebody is making bank on this stuff. And it's coming at the expense of babies and um, poor people and, you know, all the rest of it. And there was a very interesting piece that somebody sent me about one of the reasons we can't get infant formula in this country is because of the um, agree the trade agreement that Trump negotiated, which basically was supposed to protect dairy, the dairy farmers here. And um, and that's why we can't import f formula from Canada. Can you speak to that for just a second before we go? Yeah, our our trade uh, team's actually planning to to dive into this more deeply. But mm -hmm. but essentially, the um, USMCA, the U.S. Mexico trade agreement that um, former President Trump signed, had some pretty substantial tariffs um, on uh, infant formula, and I think we're gonna see more attention on that. And then also we have a lot of FDA labeling requirements and sort of restrictions that prevent European formulas from being able to be right. imported into the US. And so we're actually expecting something from FDA soon on uh, something in regards to relaxing some of those barriers. I'm not sure how far they will go. Right. Um, but Canada right now is not having an infant formula shortage. And right. there was something going around on social media that, oh, moms just needed to go on Amazon Canada and they could just ship it to their house. And and that's certainly not true. I can assure you, I actually tried to do that yesterday because I was like, huh, that's interesting. Right. And I'm, I'm visiting um, family in Washington state. So I'm about two hours, uh, south of the Canadian border right now. Uh -huh. Interesting. And I can't order I can't order a product from Amazon's Canada. Right. Even though they have plenty of stock. So th th there's some there's some something to look into there, right? Like Absolutely. does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Well I, I'm afraid we have to close here, but um thank you so much, Helena, uh both for your exemplary work um and also for spending forty five minutes on the phone with me. <laughs> Happy to do it. Happy and to do, do it. Keep Thank me, you. you know, keep Thanks me in the loop for your for your next move. I'm excited for people who didn't yeah. read Morning Ag today. Helena is leaving Politico, um, off to start something fabulous and new of her own. Uh, we'll be reporting on that on this show whenever she gives me the go ahead. So um, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for uh, for doing this and for all the great work you've been doing and will continue to do in the future. I really look forward to it. Uh, thank you so much for happens. having me. You thank, and thank you for continuing to stay on these these issues. I think it's it's important. So <laughs> I, I try. I try to do my little bit. <laughs> anyway, thanks everybody for tuning in. Thanks so much to my sponsors, as always, for supporting this program and all the shows on Heritage Radio Network. Um, remember, you can listen to things like uh, you know 
I don't know, taste of the past or um, eating matters. I mean, there's so many great programs on this station. Um, so if you haven't uh, dipped in elsewhere, please do so uh, whenever you can. And uh, we'd all be grateful for it. Thanks for listening. So long for now. That's it for today. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.